Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning, everybody. And welcome to Genesis. If you're here, if you're online, we're going to pause, we're going to pray, and get started. Father, may our hearts be receptive to the work of your Spirit. May our minds be open to reimagine how we can live as your church. And may you inspire us, Father, to step forward in establishing your kingdom. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your name. Lord, may it be fruitful in our lives and honoring to you. We do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Sunday. Uh, I have a couple of announcements for everybody. Uh, In case you were wondering or you just had an itching, burning desire to give to the Genesis cause, there is plenty of ways that you can give. First off, there are um, electronic means where you can like Venmo or Zelle or go to thegenesisstory.com and um, give your donations there. One of the cool things about thegenesisstory.com giving is through Clover and you can just set a reoccurring donation so you can just set it and forget it because we all love infomercial stuff. Um, But you can also mail in your stuff to the U.S. Postal Service, and we had some stuff on the the screen about that. Um, But in terms of events that are coming up this week, we have our weekly Take Two, which is an opportunity for everybody that listens um, to the service today or listens back on YouTube later to come in on Wednesday at 6.30 and have fellowship, have community, and discuss really kind of everything we went over during the talk today. And what's really cool about this uh, take two that's happening this week is every week there's a different guest that talks with Sam. And this week, all of the guests that have been talking in this series are going to come and be on the stage kind of in a panel. Um, And it's going to be a much wider discussion and people are very uh, encouraged to come and Uh, discuss with us and then see all the different points of view that have been building up over the weeks come together into what I anticipate to be a great conversation. I'm going to be there. I hope you're there. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun thing to do. And then lastly, uh, but not least, I think this is really awesome. Uh, We have an art gallery in our uh, building now. So if we're going to move the camera over there real quick. If you have a chance, we are starting to post some art, and on the right of the screen, you can see there uh, Kirk has uh, 
has some of his photos up, so go and check that out. There's some, um, oh yeah, there's some uh, uh, some description up there. There's an artist statement and stuff. But we're starting to uh, really get into this habit with all the events that we're doing to not only try to bring the community together, but showcase people when they do something that's cool. So if you have some art that you want to put up, we are going to be putting up different galleries periodically. And um, I hope you guys can come out and support, look at the stuff, maybe share it, and um, make the artists more popular. And if you want to buy some of their art, get in touch with them, because I think a lot of the art that comes from this community is great. So um, yeah, check it out. And um, here's Sam with the sermon. Thanks, Jordan. Again, good morning. As Jordan said, we're going to do something a little bit more expansive this Wednesday uh, with the hopes of including more people and more voices, and that includes your voices as well. We will have refreshments and things at 6.30. Probably have more refreshments since we're going to have more people. Heck, we might even get a pizza. Um, <laughs> buy pizza, they will come. Um, so you guys are invited to come and participate with us at that. And this morning, I am going to be doing a little bit of review. For the last, gosh, 10 weeks, I have been speaking on the politics of Jesus. And this has been inspired by the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon that he gave, recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and on. And I feel that what he has shared is so prevalent in the things we experience in our life. And the idea of the kingdom of God has been something that has been really a focus of ours for many years. Gosh, I remember years ago, I did a series called This Beautiful Mess, uh, taken from Rick McKinley's book called This Beautiful Mess, because I'm so original in my titles. Um, but it really is all about the kingdom of God, that which is here and, and not yet. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus were looking for the restoration of Israel. To them, that was going to be the kingdom of God when God restored Israel to an autonomy where they were no longer under the rule of Rome or any other government because they had been under the rule of the Babylonians, the Persian, Persians, the Egyptians, and here at this time, the Romans. And for them, the idea of the kingdom of God was the restoration of Israel. And Jesus comes along and he says that he himself now embodies this new kingdom and makes these huge declarations that we've been going for, which of course went well with all the religious leaders at the time. And he starts off in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, with this statement. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, I cannot overemphasize, when it says at hand, it does not mean the future, it means that it is here now within your grasp, that the kingdom of God has shown up. The kingdom of heaven is present and within your grasp. And of course, the religious leaders are threatened by this. The political system of Rome is threatened by this. The politics of Jesus is not partisan. It's not about being a part of a party 
It's neither left nor right, nor is it religious. And the reason this is political is because the idea of politics, at least classically defined, has to do with the administering of a polis. And a, a polis is simply a community of people gathered for the betterment of life together. And what Jesus is doing is beginning to declare this good news of God's kingdom, and he starts by declaring it to the poor, to the sick, to those who were demon-possessed, to, to those who were outcast, to those who were marginalized, as we saw in chapter 4. And the political system, this political system, is not built on power over the weak, but on power that is in the weak, which is a contradiction to our idea of power. And when I say political, it's about how we will work together and live our common life together in a way that reflects who God is. And remember, I, I think that both the liberal, democratic, and the conservative Republican parties are not arguing about different political systems, but they're arguing about the way to embody one political theory. And this was the first talk I did. It, it was all about both parties and our culture in general are founded on this individualistic freedom. They just have different ways and priorities of focusing on how these individual liberties should be expressed. And so being Democrat or Republican isn't arguing about the best way to be like Christ in the world, but about the best way to live out our individualism. And this is so persuasive in our thinking and our identity, we don't even understand how it, it starts to seep in into all these areas of life. And this is why these words of Jesus are so conflicting to so many of the things that we hold, right? I mean, this is really about Jesus talking how we are supposed to live. You are the light of the world, he says. You are the salt of the earth. Whatever you pray, believing you will receive. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. These words were not meant to be taken to us as you, the individual, but as to you, the collective. But because we are so in this individualistic liberty setup, everything we hear that says the word you, we think of it as personal. You are the light of the world. That's me. Whatever you pray. And we have this idea that we are not a part of something bigger. And the kingdom of God is about a collective of people that represent the heart of God, that it's not done individually, but is done collectively, that it is a body of believers, that Paul would say we are individual members, but we make up this one body. These words are not meant to be taken as you, the individual, but as the collective. And think about how we view liberty itself. 
Liberty in the current cultural climate means the absence of rules or restraints, sometimes even ethics or morals, things that would invade our personal freedoms. I have the freedom to live how I want, my body, my choice, whether it's abortion or to get vaccinated, the right to bear arms, to use drugs. In both cases, we are sharing a set of assumptions that I think in themselves should be called into question by the kingdom of God mentality. If your individual freedoms are more important than the collective of well-being for the people around us, how does it represent the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God does not have borders, but it's every tribe, every nation. The kingdom of God is not like the nations of the world. Nations rely on the threat of coercive power, police enforcement of law and policy. The kingdom consists of influence through self-sacrificial love. The nation state has self-interested agenda for its own preservation. The kingdom is given the ministry of reconciliation. In our own national identity, our political vision is about maximizing the pursuit of happiness as defined by our individual liberties. The kingdom is a community reflecting the way of Jesus through the denial of self, the transformation of Christ-likeness. And it's important to set these things as the foundation because if this foundation is not placed here, if we do not see the kingdom of heaven as something that is present that we are living into, then we can easily be divided into these other spaces and say that these things are how we will live out our Christian lives instead of the foundation of God's kingdom being what we build on. One of the most important things when we did a room addition at our house was that slab. We had to get that slab in place because everything else was going to be built on it. If it wasn't level, guess what? The house wouldn't be level. If it was too far down, guess what? It wouldn't have matched where we were in the house. It it had to be there so that we could build the walls. The walls had to then hold the roof. All those things were based on that foundation. The idea of the kingdom of God is the foundation that we are building on. It is what life in Christ is supposed to look like. And if we take that and we contaminate it with other ideas or or put it off into the future some way. The kingdom of heaven isn't something here present now that I'm living into. It's something that I go to when I die. Then it doesn't affect how I live now that much. Oh, it does a little bit, but then it falls into the policies of the different political systems instead of the polis of the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to tell us who makes up this kingdom. What is the character of God's kingdom? And he does this in Matthew chapter 5, what we call the Beatitudes. And I'm going to read from verse 2 to 12 because they are powerful in their declaration. If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like right here, right now, Jesus tells us. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for 
for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's so interesting how we can lose sight of this being the core of who we are as Christians, right? We wanna be a Christian nation. If we wanna be a Christian nation, wouldn't this go up in our courtrooms instead of the 10 commandments? Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Whoa, 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 wait a second, right? It challenges us. Now, I'm not saying there's something wrong with the Ten Commandments. I'm not saying there isn't validity in those things. But do you see how we so quickly move away from this? Because this challenges how we deal with one another in some dramatic ways. And if this is what the character of God looks like and what Jesus is presenting, then how do we adopt this into our lifestyle with one another? The word blessed, as we said, is used for something that has already happened, not for something that is going to happen. Blessed are the children of Queen Elizabeth, maybe. Right? It's an idea that they are currently a child, and that relationship guarantees them to the inheritance that is theirs. Right? It's sure to come. They are already blessed in virtue of who they are. You don't have to do these things to be the child of Queen Elizabeth. You already are a child of the queen, and so this is yours by inheritance. And we looked at how each of these blessings were things found in the Hebrew scriptures, that they're not just pulled randomly out of the air, that Jesus was building on an understanding that was throughout their scriptures. And this is the picture Jesus is painting. The future promises to Israel are being restored through Jesus and through these people who look like this. The kingdom, when it comes, two things will happen. Blessings to the humble and indictment to those who think they are strong and use their position over others to benefit it for themselves. That's the challenge that Jesus is putting out there. Any politics that gets strength from using others to advance their own control and agenda is not the politics of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of questions that can rise up, and I hope you guys will come out on Wednesday and ask those questions. What about nations? How are we to conduct ourselves? We do need borders. We do need things like that. How do we conduct ourselves in this frame and still maintain a posture that is kingdom-minded? Those are difficult things to, to balance out, but me as an individual, this is supposed to be what I look like, the characteristics that I look like, right? And that's why when I say something like this and people get upset with me and they say, oh, you don't like our political system. I've had so many people accuse me of being a political 
party that I'm not a part of just because I'm standing in a place where I'm trying to promote the politics of Jesus. And it confronts some of our own politics. And I'm sorry. What can I say? That's how it looks to me. I don't know. I'm trying to wrestle through this just like we all are. But I find myself being confronted with the words of Jesus and confronted with my own personal liberties and having to make decisions. What's the best way to live forward? How do I represent God most effectively in this world? He goes on and he tells us that this kingdom is both salt and the light of the world. Both salt and light are meant to affect the things around them, but they can also lose their effectiveness. It can be hid under a basket. It can be thrown out and trampled by people. And notice this isn't about going out there and sharing your faith. It's passive. You are salt. You are light. Not you need to be or, or you need to get more salty or you need to have more light. It's a pronunciation. You are. Now it is conditioned by the characteristics he just spoke about. Poor in spirit, merciful, right? Meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. This is then who you are if you are these people. The big takeaway through this is taking the Israel language and inserting the followers of Jesus in Israel's place. Can't you see now how living collective character is different than the individualistic obligation that we together can represent this more than an individual person can. The best gift the church gives to the world is reflecting the kingdom. And this should be our chief concern, to reflect the kingdom. And this is the challenge, right, for us. This is the challenge for me as I pastor a a church, a a body of people who want to identify themselves with, with Jesus. I want to know, are we reflecting the kingdom? Because it's so easy to want to reflect ourselves, to stand for something ourselves. And we do this, and we are a church who doesn't, you know, we don't compromise the word, and and we don't, you know, discriminate against these people, and we don't, and we start getting this individual identity, and we start losing the character of God that is collective, and that we are part of something that is much bigger, that we are standing on the shoulders of people who have gone before us, that we are part of a legacy that is to continue. And if we try to adapt our own identity and don't connect to the identity that was found in these words of Jesus, then we miss the mark. He goes on and he talks about verse five, or chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. We spoke about the law being 613 commands found in the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures. The reason this is so important is because this is no longer in cement, but something discussed and reasoned with together. They, they dialogued about what those laws meant. And, and we talked about how they had heavy laws and light laws. 
the kingdom of heaven, remember, we still tend to think of a place that you go to when you die, right? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. The idea is fulfilling them is to understand them and interpret them well and live into them. To abolish them is to misunderstand them and to not follow them. He goes on in verse 19, he says, whoever relaxes, which means sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To fulfill Torah and the prophet means to interpret properly and to put into practice. To abolish means to interpret it wrong and not practice it correctly. And Jesus then goes on to confront six of the heavy and light traditions used to interpret these 613 commands of the Torah. And again, understand the kingdom of heaven. It's identified with the character of Christ. And we are stepping into that character. We are stepping into the kingdom of heaven. He talked about murder and anger, the heavy, the light, how the heart matters and affects the whole. And just because you don't murder someone doesn't make you righteous, as the Pharisees thought. Now, it's a good start, okay? It's a good thing. We, we should all try to at least do that, not murder one another. It, it's a great thing, but it does go deeper, and Jesus does talk about that issue of anger and the places that anger can lead us to. We looked at those places where Jesus was angry himself because angry in itself is not a bad thing, but what is it producing? When Jesus was angry, he healed a man with a shriveled hand. He was angry at them because they were challenging him whether he would heal on the Sabbath. He was angry when his disciples didn't let the children come to him. And he brought the children in, said, don't keep them away. Allow them to come to me. The kingdom of heaven looks like them. And he blessed them. He was angry when they didn't believe in him and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he was angry too, we associate with the temple when he cursed the practices that kept people from the temple and died to replace it. And so, does my anger look like healing? Does my anger look like blessing? Does my anger produce life? Does my anger offer itself sacrificially? Or is my anger consuming and destroying and leading towards hate? He talked about adultery and lust. Remember, adultery was a violation of another man's property, which was considered women. And Jesus confronts the double standard, and he says that adultery begins with a violation of coveting, lusting, wanting, and that violation is against the woman. Just because you don't commit adultery doesn't mean you're righteous. Again, it's a good start. But what are you desiring? What are you covering and coveting? And are you minimizing the value of someone? Because Jesus is continuing this understanding of what it means to hold something in our heart. 
And I spent some time looking at the history of abuse towards women in the history of the church when we went through this. And even to this day, using scripture to silence women, to keep them from having any sort of leadership or power. The politics and character of the kingdom has to be a place where women are valued and are safe. We looked at Galatians 3.28 where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That this mentality should be seen. This is part of the kingdom mentality. And from this idea of adultery and coveting, he moves towards divorce. Verse 31, he says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus continues addressing the abuse towards women regarding divorce, where some of the rabbis interpreted Moses' words to be that they could divorce their wives for any and every reason. And Jesus takes them to Genesis before Moses and say, that's not God's intention. He made them to be one. This wasn't a marital counseling of the only things that could happen. This is Jesus confronting the circumstances that were happening at his time and the view that was held by the religious people. And it was the views of one of the rabbis that was prominent. We also looked at Exodus 21.10 where Jesus, or Jesus, but where Moses says, if he marries another one, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. That there was much more involved than just sexual immorality for reasons for divorce. And again, I went to it in, in quite depth there, but what we're seeing here is a continuation, this thread going on where we value people. And so we are not going to commit adultery. We are not going to covet something that doesn't belong to us. We are not going to discard something just because it's not pleasing to us that we are going to value those who are weak. This is part of the kingdom mentality. He then goes on and he talks about religious language and manipulation. Verse 33, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord to the Lord that which you have sworn. Again, swearing is not cursing. It's making an oath. Attaching the name of God to your oath so that it has more power. Using God to manipulate people. The kingdom does not use spiritual language to bring about personal gain. The politics of Jesus is about truth-telling. We are seeking truth. We are following the God of light. We follow light wherever it leads us. We are not afraid of science, of investigation. We're not afraid of accountability. We're not afraid of confession. We're not afraid of having an image that isn't flattering. The kingdom character is about humility and authenticity. It is about being real. It is the poor in spirit, it is the meek. It is the who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You see, this is what it is. It's not posturing ourselves to be right, to be powerful is putting ourselves in a place of humility, following God wherever he leads us, truth wherever it goes, following the light, being open to these things. 
And what is the idea of the church these days? Does it come across as people who are humble, people who are desiring to help and benefit others? Or are we in a place where we are resisting the kingdom of God has the character of humility. He then looks at the laws of reciprocity, first addressing it negatively. In verse 38, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, let those words strike you. (laughs) Just like someone who would slap you, what does this verse do to your ego? The first thing it does to me is say, whoa, 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 not, that doesn't sound right. Now, I, I went into some detail of how the word resist means do not compete with an evil person in their wrongdoing. And we talked about what it meant to strike someone on the right cheek with your right hand, how you had to backhand them, and it was a sign of a superior to an inferior. And offering the left cheek, what it's doing is saying, I will not confront you back with hitting you. I will confront you that you have to strike me on the left cheek with your right hand, which puts me in a position of your equal. It's something you would do with a family member. Now, I hope you don't do it with your family members. I don't slap my family members. But at that time, it was something that was done, okay? And instead of doing nothing, find creative ways to elevate the circumstances and protect your honor and challenge the honor of your persecutor. They want to take your shirt, give them your coat also. Now you're naked, it exposes their greed. It exposes it in your nakedness. Then dealing with the positive part of reciprocity. I'll love those who love me. Instead, Jesus says in verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus expands the view of who is our neighbor by including everyone, not just our countrymen, the people who agree with us. And showing love to our enemy is not feeling fondness for them or agreeing with them. It is an action to do what is best. God is inviting us into this maturity, this perfection, this completion, which he says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's not saying that we are to be morally perfect. He is inviting us to love the way God loves. When then we looked at the contrast between the prophet Nahum and Jonah and the story regarding the Ninevites, how one was condemning their action, one was looking back and showing God's concern for people who didn't know their right hand for the left. That's what it is to love your neighbor. And all of this is flowing from verse 20 in chapter five. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that doesn't mean when you die, you won't go and be somewhere else. Unless your righteousness is better than theirs, you will not participate in what God is doing. 
He is presenting a positive view of righteousness and undermining the way the Pharisees interpreted Torah, challenging them. And that's why his politics is different. And in the weeks to come, we're going to continue through chapter 6. And notice in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And again, righteousness is a huge concept that includes loving kindness. It includes justice. It includes mercy. It includes healing. It's the idea of salvation, which is inclusive to all these things. The Pharisees had reduced righteousness to three acts of piety. The first was that of prayer. Second was fasting. The third was giving of alms or giving to the poor. Jesus is going to go on and give three examples of not practicing righteousness before people. And guess what three examples he's going to use? He's going to use that of prayer, he's going to use it of fasting, and he's going to use that of giving to the poor. He is going to expose their piety and how it does not look like the righteousness that is a part of God's kingdom. Now, Jesus told us that we are to let our light shine in such a way that people would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But now he's telling us not to do these works to be seen by men. And so what's going on here, right? Now he's saying we're not to do good deeds to be seen. And oh my gosh, I mean, recognition is so a part of our culture, right? I mean, if I don't take a picture and post it, does it exist? Right. Did I actually eat the meal if I don't show it? If it's the approval of people we are looking for, then it's the approval of people we will get, but we will miss the approval of the Father in the process. And, and so this is going back to character. If we want to be seen, we can be seen, and being seen is all that we'll get. If we want to be good and do good, then we will be seen by the Father and we will be participants in the kingdom. So what is the role of us, the church, in all this? Because going through this, you guys, it's a little depressing. At least for me, I'm thinking, okay, God, this is what your kingdom supposed to look like. Where is it? Where is it seen today? Who, who is representing you, God? Right? In Mark's gospel, it starts off where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is supposed to be good news. This is supposed to be something that is hopeful. This is supposed to produce hope to us and and to people around us. Because of how we're living, it is hopeful. We want to produce that which is hopeful. And to do that, we have to have 
critical minds, but not critical spirits. We have to think critically. We have to be able to look at things and we have to see that things are, are very nuanced, that there is so much going on in all these areas, right? Whether we're talking about murder and anger, whether we're talking about adultery, lust, divorce, whether we're talking about reciprocity and how we are interacting. There are so many variables that take place in every situation. We have to critically enter into this, but we don't have to be critically, have a critical heart in all these things. In other words, I have to have a heart that is malleable to the spirit of God and wanting to do good and not a heart that just shuts things down. Because I got to tell you, especially because I'm, I'm listening to all these podcasts and, and maybe that's my problem, right? I'm listening to all these things that are talking about just how much harm has been done in the name of Jesus and how many people have been hurt. Even this morning, as I was setting up with Jason and going over some things that have happened to him and to us and to people we know, it, it is very disturbing to see the people who in the name of Jesus do not look like the kingdom of God, do not look poor in spirit, do not look meek, do not look like people who are hungering and thirsting after righteous, who aren't merciful, who are anything but like Jesus. And I wonder where is the hope? And the hope is in this collective of people who want to represent God. The hope is in us. And we have to take that responsibility to want to be the people who reflect this in spite of the culture that says we are to look differently. In spite of a a Christian culture that looks differently. I've never told anyone how they should vote and I never will. But I do want to challenge how we live towards one another and conduct ourselves in this culture. Because this is what we are being pushed into. And we are going to be challenged in this area of hope. And that's the great thing. In the weeks to come, we are going to be looking at prayer. We're going to be looking at fasting. We're going to be looking at money and how in all these things there is to be hope. Oh my gosh, I could use some hope. I hope we all can. But these words of Jesus that we've gone over the last 10 weeks, these are hard hitting. These are things that have challenged me and have challenged us throughout the century of how we are going to live. No one, I've said this before, sat there, heard these words of Jesus and say, I feel so good about myself that I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. No one was thinking that. Everyone was thinking, oh my gosh, how do I live into this kingdom? It is so different than the powers that we see in place. It is so contrary to the kingdoms of the world. That was, was done by Rome and that, that was being exemplified by the religious leaders. How do we live into this kingdom today? The challenge is here for us and I hope you've been challenged. I, I hope this 
has struck you the way it has struck me and has struck so many people throughout the centuries who have read these words and have shook their heads and have said, I don't get it, or have tried to justify it and say, oh, that just means what happens after we die, try and make ourselves get out of it somehow. But Jesus keeps telling us as he's going to, at the end of this, you have to live into this. And that's what we're struggling to do is to be the church to live in the kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we depend on you even as we go into his prayer and the understanding of what it means to be his follower. May we understand this is a challenge for us to be participants in the hope that God wants to bring to the world. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for me to just go through these things that you have said and just keep on going without looking back. And I just needed to pause today and look back and be challenged again by all these things. Just time and time and time again, you are hammering at us, hammering at us, hammering at us what the justice of God looks like in our lives that relates to people, to, that relates to those who are the weak, those who are abused, to those who are forgotten, but not by you. And the challenge to not allow us to forget either. And so I pray, God, that we are challenged this morning by the things that you have said, that things that we have looked at for the past weeks, that we would not take them lightly, that we would wrestle with them, Lord. And that like Jacob, we, after having wrestled with you, will be marked that we will not leave here without a limp because we have been struck by the God who is so good that he changes us. Lord, may we not settle to know and not be changed. Thank you for your words. May we continue to wrestle with them, I pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. There's a lot we can talk about regarding everything I shared, and I hope that you will come here Wednesday to join us in that conversation. How do we do these things? How can we as people represent the kingdom of God. And I hope you guys will come down here and participate in that conversation. This, I would hate for us to become a people who didn't realize the power we had collectively and not take the opportunity for us to gather and meet and benefit one another. And so Wednesday, we have that opportunity. Again, we'll 6.30 start with the refreshments and some food, and at 7 o'clock begin the conversation, but you're a part of this conversation. And so I invite you to be here Wednesday to join in this so that we can learn how together to be the church, to participate in the kingdom that we collectively 
can bring hope to our community and to the world that we're living in. And so you're invited to participate in this conversation because it's not just a few voices that make the difference. It's all the voices together that bring about this new song that God is wanting to bring about in our lives. So you're invited to be a part of that. And may the Spirit of God enable you to represent him and his kingdom in spite of the other kingdoms that are, are around, that your hearts wouldn't be critical, but you would still critically think about what he has for all of us. God bless you guys. Love you. Hope to see you Wednesday. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.